This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we discuss Apache Spark, HDFS, data lakes, and other AI solution topics with Rick Wong and Ken Hill. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipark. Zipark. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today have a couple of special guests to talk to us all about Apache, Spark, Hadoop, Big Data, Data Lakes, AI, all these sorts of good topics. So to do that today, we have Ken Hillier here. So Ken, what do you do here at NetApp? I can be reached at ken at netapp.com. I've been here for a while. I'm an executive architect. It's a fancy name for being an enterprise architect. I look at our solutions and my involvement with analytics and NetApp AI has been helping our customers get data to NFS and be able to access and do the workflows that they want to do without the contentions of other storage protocol restrictions. All right. Also with us today, we have Rick Huang. So Rick, what do you do here at NetApp? How do we reach you? I'm a data scientist at NetApp's AI solutions engineering team. I can be reached at rick.huang.net.com. And what I do, I develop, publish, and evangelize AI solutions across multiple industry verticals. Our goal is to empower customers with innovative AI solutions that provide maximum value to their businesses. Leveraging our expertise in data science, machine learning, and cloud ops, we work tirelessly to offer cutting-edge solutions that drive business outcomes and help our customers stay ahead of the competition. I recently published a series of blogs on Apache Spark and NetApp AI. So as far as AI goes, we're a big partner with NVIDIA, and we do a lot of work with them. And my understanding is there's a conference coming up pretty soon, Rick. So are we going to have a presence there? When is that conference, and what sort of things will we be doing there? We actually have a virtual poster in GTC. The name is Automated Insurance Risk Detection Solution with NVIDIA and Quantify. It will be available after Jensen's keynote. I will share the link with you. All right, excellent. We'll add that to the blog. So we're here to talk about the new blog that you actually put out that talks about NetApp AI and solutions with ONTAP and Apache Spark specifically. So let's talk about that. What is Apache Spark? What does it do and how does it work? Sure. Apache Spark is a powerful open source big data processing engine that enables efficient and fast processing of large data sets in a distributed computing environment. Spark provides a unified analytics engine for large-scale data processing with support for various data sources and types. One of its main advantages is the in-memory processing capability, which enables handling iterative algorithms and AI workloads with great speed and efficiency. For example, let's say you're analyzing a large data set of customer transactions for a banking company. With Spark, you can quickly perform tasks such as data cleansing, feature engineering, and model training inferencing on the dataset, and efficiently scale the processing capability to handle increasingly large datasets and complex environments 
from on-premises or cloud-native to hybrid multi-cloud as your business grows. As for Horovod, it is a open source distributed training framework that enables scalable and efficient deep learning model training across multiple GPUs and nodes. With Horovod, you can distribute the workload across multiple workers, allowing you to process large amounts of data and train complex models much faster than with a single node setup. In addition, Oracle supports popular deep learning libraries such as TensorFlow, PyTorch, and MXNet, making it easy to integrate with your existing ML workflows. Let's say you're training a computer vision model for object detection using TensorFlow. This is a common application during document digitization for automatic risk detection. If you check out our virtual poster, you'll see more details. Besides training faster, you can also fine-tune the model with additional data and optimize the hyperparameters to further improve its performance. However, there are some challenges associated with using Harvard, such as a need to carefully manage the communication overhead and ensure that the data is distributed correctly across your nodes. Another issue is dealing with hardware and software heterogeneity. As different nodes may have different GPUs, CPUs, or software libraries and frameworks installed. Finally, it is important to consider the trade-offs between model accuracy, training time, and data architecture costs when using Carvo or any other distributed training framework. My bug deep learning with Apache Spark and NetApp AI, Carvo distributed training will tell you other considerations, questions you ask yourself first before deploying or adopting Harvard challenges and how NetApp solutions mitigate them. And a beautiful performance testing results figure. What sort of real world use cases have we seen with deep learning? From a, a regular person's perspective, we hear deep learning and machine learning and AI, our eyes kind of go glassy, right? We're like, oh man, that's really advanced stuff. But overall, it's used in some really simple use cases, I would imagine. So what sort of use cases would we find that are surprising that Apache Spark is in the background doing the work? Right. I can provide a financial sentiment analysis example using deep learning. We analyzed NASDAQ top 10 company earnings call transcripts. Uh, from the transcripts, you can see positive, negative, or neutral sentiments. From the CEO, CIO's prepared remarks is mostly neutral or positive. However, the interesting part is the analysts' questions, right? You get from their wording and their question, is it a positive or negative remark? And then you can correlate it with next day's stock performance. So over time, let's say 30 years of NetApp's earnings call transcripts, you can make a deep learning system that can predict your stock prices for the next day. And then, your CEOs, CIOs, they can prepare their remarks accordingly, right? They can put their prepared 
transcripts into the system, and then the system can make suggestions like, I don't know, please don't use this term. Otherwise, the analysts from some banks or investment firms will say something. Okay. And Ken, you have some experience in this industry as well. So from a customer's perspective that you work with, what sort of things are you seeing out there with the use of Apache Spark and that sort of thing? Well, with some of the customers that I'm working with, the big challenge that they've been having is getting access to the data. So Spark is a layer above the traditional data lakes that in the past have been defined by Hadoop servers, which could be white box servers with both compute and storage integrated. Or as things have progressed and things have been optimized, there has been shared storage options layered in. However, at the end of the day, you still have a data lake that needs to manage massive amounts of data, both ingest and all of the operations that's going on. On top of that, one of the big challenges that we ran into with one customer is that in order for them to access the data, they were a low priority beyond the other stuff that had to be maintained within the data lake. So a big challenge was just getting the data out from the data lake itself so that application frameworks like Spark could run against it. So that's the biggest things that I've been seeing. And one of the ways we've been helping our customers get the data that they need where they need it so they can conduct what operations against it they want to. Yeah, Ken, that is a great use case. And I want to add that nowadays people tear data lakes into hot, warm, and cold layers for active production, prototyping, and historical archive. However, as they move towards hybrid multi-cloud architectures, migrating these data lakes is difficult, as you said. For example, the data may need to be transformed or reformatted to be compatible with the new environment, and security governance policies may need to be re-evaluated. That's Blue XP Copy and Sync, previously known as CloudSync, XTP, Cloud Data Sense and CVO help our customers migrate their data lakes securely while ensuring reliability, reducing costs, and improving performance. Absolutely. I would actually double click on that, Rick, because in the customers I've been working with, that's been one of our defining differentiators is our ability to help them manage their data in and out of the data lakes and get it to where they want it to go, whether it is on a NetApp system on-prem or a solution in the cloud and going for true hybrid. So this data has to go somewhere, right? It has to be stored somewhere. And traditionally, Apache Spark has leveraged Hadoop and HDFS as a backend, but that has its drawbacks and its benefits. So let's talk about that. Let's discuss HDFS, what it's good for, and maybe what some of the downsides of using HDFS are, especially within regards to the Apache Spark application. Yeah, I'm sure everyone knows HDFS is a distributed file system designed for storing large datasets. Its key benefit is parallel processing of data across multiple servers, making it ideal for big data and AI ML applications. It's used by giant corporations in the social media, healthcare, life science, and financial services industry to store and process massive amounts of data. However, HDFS has, has some drawbacks, such as high overhead required for data reapplication and the fact that it's not well suited for small files. Additionally, it requires a cluster to run, 
which can be costly and complex to set up and maintain. Here is where NFS comes to the rescue. NFS has been around for decades. It allows files to be accessed and shared across the network and is often used for a wide range of scenarios from traditional web servers, file sharing, on-premises and hybrid cloud data pipelines to more involved AI model training and inferencing. We have NFS Direct Access that works seamlessly with Spark. Compared to HDFS, NFS Direct Access is simple to set up and maintain and can help improve data processing speed and efficiency. I focus on this speed part in my blog so you can read the performance comparison. We achieved pretty good runtime speedups. This is especially important in today's data-driven business environment, where real-time analytics and machine learning models require fast and reliable access to large volumes of data spread across multiple locations. It's a great choice for many small files in large data sets, like text logs generated hourly or even by the minute, depending on the use case and demand. Yeah, I would agree with all of that, Rick. Taking a step back and step up, one thing I would add just for perspective is that as our customers, as our whole industry is really looking at how they can leverage dynamic different resources, whether it's in the cloud or hybrid model or building something new up on-prem, they need to be able to be agile and be able to create these things. And traditionally, a Hadoop infrastructure has been very siloed. So access to it is highly controlled. How it curates the data is designed to deal with massive amounts of data. So it has to control access to it. And that makes it difficult for us to leverage different resources or be able to get the data near enough to the cloud where customers might be able to actually leverage cloud resources against some of the data that they have. I think that's one of the main reasons why I've personally been seeing, and I think the industry is seeing Spark separating from Hadoop and trying to focus on being able to run against different data sources instead of just only on Hadoop itself. So with Hadoop, I would imagine that things like snapshots and replication and data management aren't exactly key features, right? Or if they are features, they're not as robust as maybe what ONTAP offers. Would you agree with that? Or would you say that there's a lot of similarities with what a massive flex root volume hosted with NFS would offer with HDFS? I would say that with Hadoop, there are many settings that you have to tweak. It's not as intuitive, like untap with a click of a button, your replication, your snapshots, those are taken care of, right? What I would add to that is I think Hadoop was solving a problem in its day of managing large data footprints. They really did define what data lakes could be. And I think their focus in the architecture they set up within HDFS or within Hadoop was focusing on the data. How can they manage and maintain and provide durability to data when we're all very familiar that things fail, hardware fails? So I think if we were to compare what Hadoop does to protect data and its data management capabilities against ONTAP, 
I think we do have a much rich uh, set of tools that could be used with the data, with snapshots, replication, and all of that, because we not only control the file system and how things are written out to the storage behind it, but we also control the RAID on top of it. And that's all very optimized. And I would say that is one of the key differences between, say, like ONTAP versus the storage part of a Hadoop system. They don't really have that level or that focus of optimization on the back end. They're focusing more on protecting the data. Yeah, and I would add another point for data scientists and data engineers working on Hadoop itself takes a lot of time. And if you want to add those data management capabilities, it's <laughs> even more complex. With our data ops toolkit, data scientists, data engineers, they can quickly prototype and develop, also put their models into production. And they don't have to worry about the underlying data lake, how it works and what is it using, NFS, ISCAC, or other protocols. So are you telling me that data scientists don't want the IT nerd street cred of the harder solution? They want the easy stuff? <laughs> they want the quick stuff, right? They want to play around with their models instead of dealing with the underlying storage and IT management. Yeah, I guess maybe back in the day that was cool, but now it's like, man, I really don't want to deal with this. <laughs> I want to just get my work done, right? I want to get this stuff done and get it done quickly and efficiently and have the confidence that it's going to be protected. Yeah, they don't want to copy a data set and wait for 16 hours mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and then don't know what to do. With data apps too, it's done within a few minutes with a snapshot and then they can provision other Jupyter workspaces and play in it. So you said the magic word copy and that kind of takes us into our next topic where we talk about migrating a data leak. And really what it comes down to is if you're trying to move off of Hadoop and you've got millions or billions of files or multiple petabytes of data, that's going to be a challenge. So Ken, talk to me about that. How would we accomplish this to begin with? And what are some of the challenges that we really need to look out for when we are planning this? Well, speaking to the challenges first, there's going to be a set of processes or governance that's in place over the data lake. And all of that's going to have to be looked at for whatever portion of the data that's being moved. How is that going to translate to a new solution or a new architecture? So that's something that's very real. And it's going to be something that as customers are looking to make a change with how they're managing and maintaining their data, what is this going to look like if they're moving to a different platform like ONTAP for NFS or Storage Grid for Object or something like that. What's the, going to be the data governance around that? So that's definitely going to be a very important part of the consideration. But the mechanics, how a customer can approach this, there's ways of getting natively out of HDFS. They provide NFS gateways, they have API access and that kind of stuff. And it's usable, but I think one of the things that has been very successful with us is NetApp has been focusing on how we can integrate more directly so that given a certain data set that we want to copy, that we can natively access HDFS or Hadoop and be able to copy that data to ONTAP. And then from there, we can get it to storage grid. So that's been a big differentiator. It's made it very easy for our customers to set up migration or batch jobs to grab data out of the data lake and be able to bring it over to the NetApp AI infrastructure so that they can run their jobs against it. 
That's a great point, Ken. The challenge overall is managing the complexity of multiple environments and technologies. A hybrid multi cloud architecture involves a mix of on premises infrastructure, public cloud services, each with their own sets of tools and technologies. And if you have data lakes, cloud, and also on premises, managing and integrating these different components can be complex and time consuming requiring careful planning and coordination. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick, because that actually really starts shining a light on some of the challenges our customers are dealing with. When we start looking at taking a step away from AI and analytics itself, if the data scientists want to work with the data and they need to move that to the cloud, there's going to be certain controls that need to be put in place to make sure that compliance is adhered to. So those are things that with our experience managing data, we can certainly help guide our customers around our part in the solution. But I think that's going to be something that all of our customers are going to be facing more and more of. And I think the key really is how can we make the data motion behind that from data lakes to different parts of stuff on-prem and or in a hybrid model, getting the data where they need it, when they need it. Yes. And I would add another use case from our customer in media and entertainment. One is real-time streaming analytics for personalized recommendation. And the other is more interesting, is the end-to-end production of TV and films. I'm in the M&E capital of the world, so I know how difficult it is to make a movie. From a production perspective, you may need real-time dailies transfer from your current filming sets or data centers in different locations to the editors or VFX studios. This requires a reliable and efficient data transfer solution that can securely transfer large amounts of data over long distances while maintaining data integrity and ensure data security from ransomware attacks or other cyber threats that can compromise data privacy and availability. So do you want to really just leave your project deadlines and high quality results to chance with our Blue XP copy and sync, CVO, Cloud Data Science? We've got you covered. Ready to take your data transfer game to the next level? Oh. And for those not familiar with the term, historically, a daily represents the prints of takes of camera footage from one day's shooting, usually without correction or editing, for examination by the director before the next day's shooting. That's why it's called a daily. In recent decades, most films are shot digitally, enabling directors to monitor the shot without added VFX effects. But terabytes of source data get generated on set these days and will eventually need to make it back to media servers. So a well-designed, cost-effective, secure, high-performance data fabric is crucial to the timely success of global film and TV productions. Okay, (laughs) I digress. (laughs) I always get too excited talking about films. No, it's really cool. It's a really cool industry. And Hearing you talk about this, I start to think, why would I copy that data? Why not use some of the integrated ONTAP features 
that require no copying, right? <laughs> you've got things like FlexCache. You've got things like the ability to expose object storage using NAS shares. So we have stuff that allows you to copy things, of course, such as your Blue XP and your Cloud Sync and that sort of thing. But in some cases, you might not even have to copy any data. You would only use the data that you need as you access it, and it all happens automatically behind the scenes. Justin, yes. yeah, I think you're bringing up a really good point. The ability to get the data to where it needs to go is definitely an important aspect. But in a scenario like you're describing and what Rick was talking about, there's not a reason to actually move the data. If we have the data available, even if we need to, um, from a compliance or managing the data perspective, make sure that nothing happens to the original copy, we have the ability to do clones or snapshots and, and be able to set up entirely different environments, maybe for that director so he can review, make some firsthand edits without actually touching the source or for any other operation that might be going on. And Ken, you've got background in the media and entertainment space. I remember this from my support days. So you've seen this firsthand that customers in that industry, they want to try to save as much real estate as possible. They want to make it as easy as possible. And that's mm -hmm. really what these feature sets and ONTAP are doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So getting data from one site to another, like you said, moving all of the data, especially if it's only pieces of it are needed, FlexCache makes a really great way for different sites within some of these media companies to be able to share data and also so that they can keep their assets where they want them. Because when you have multiple sites, more often than not, in my experience, there's going to be a primary site where they put in the infrastructure to be able to maintain data on a much larger scale than the rest of the sites. So we've gotten a little off topic here. So let's get back to the AI discussion. And Rick, you kind of touched on it in media entertainment with the algorithms that help you decide on what you want to watch next, right? So if you open up your Amazon or your Netflix and you go in there and there's a suggested for you topic, that's not by accident. There's something going on in the background that tells you what you've been watching and guesses what you're going to like based on a giant, probably data lake of selections from other people. So is Apache Spark involved in that sort of thing, or is it something similar in the background that does that? Yeah, for sure. Something in the background would do it. And Apache Spark can handle the processing and the data pipelines, also some AI machine learning. So I cannot say for sure if those companies are using Spark or a variant or their in-house development for this applications, but yeah, you get the idea. Yeah, I know Netflix is very open with their architecture, like they have blogs on this stuff, and I know that they've pretty much rolled their own private cloud. I mean, that's virtually what's going yeah. on there. And it's very impressive. Once, what they... once, yeah, once these corporations are big enough, they start to take the open source stuff and make it their own. This is actually how Horrible came into life. It originally developed by Uber. So you said originally developed by Google? Uber. Oh, Uber. Okay, so Uber actually developed Horovod? That's interesting. Yeah. They develop it, use it, open source it. Yeah. Oh, Cool. It's good to see that these tech companies are not just hoarding the technology, right? They're releasing it and delivering it to others to use because it actually benefits them in the long run. Because if you open source something, people can improve it, they can secure it, and it's very transparent to everybody. Yeah, this is similar to Facebook with PyTorch and Google with TensorFlow. 
Google with Kubernetes. I mean, that's <laughs> lots, lots out there. That, yeah, TensorFlow that, yeah. and Kubernetes. All right. So speaking of Kubernetes, that is one of those things that powers a cloud architecture. So let's talk about the hybrid cloud AI workflow. Like, what does that look like? How do they interact with the AI? Tell me end to end how an AI workflow would take the cloud and leverage that for its benefit. Right. In my blog, I provide an example of a cloud service partner providing motor cloud connectivity for an IoT big data analytics environment. If you look at the figure of that blog, it starts from the sensors. They sent real-time events via REST API to a EC2 VPC. And in that, you have Kafka first, and then goes to Spark jobs for processing. And it talks to our NFS direct access as the storage backend. And you can send those processed data to your on-premises cluster or another cloud provider via direct connect or express route. And in your Spark cluster, you can do fancy stuff on-premises with our ONTAP storage and your compute of choice. You know, that's actually a really good point about hybrid cloud. Many of our customers are going to be faced with the need to build or leverage resources that it's not cost effective to build up in-house. And it's going to be the reason why they take a look at the cloud to be able to augment the services they can provide to their own end users. And really why we see the industry moving towards a hybrid multi-cloud architecture across the board. Yeah, customers want to run analytics and AI jobs on the same day by using multiple clouds. But the main challenge is to build a cost-effective and efficient solution that delivers hybrid analytics and AI ML DL services among different environments. And another example of working with one customer, they only have so much resources on-prem, so many GPUs available. There's different groups within their data science teams that don't have the resources available for them or it's restricted. And that's another reason why bursting into the cloud is, is very attractive. And part of the reasons why they're looking at leveraging cloud resources to augment what they already have on-prem. Yes. And speaking of bursting into the cloud, actually the public cloud providers, they all offer very good AI ML like SageMaker or other Azure ML capabilities. These are good, but once the demand gets large, then you will keep accruing the cloud costs. This usage, and then especially if you want to move data, egress charges, it can be very intimidating. Yeah, that's actually another really good point. And the reason why I think we as a company, have seen a lot of our customers journey to the cloud, right? Even though they're all using various resources from different hyperscalers, at the end of the day, there's still a need to maintain on-prem resources. And you nailed one of them. I mean, if there's something that is being sustained, constant resource requirement, it's probably going to be cheaper building and maintaining that on-prem than paying for that in one of the clouds. Would you say that's the case that when you're dealing with like GPU servers, right? So you have these very expensive GPU servers and 
maybe you're not using them all the time, right? But the cloud has GPU servers that you can rent or you can lease. So in those use cases, it might be more cost effective to just use the cloud for your compute because that CapEx and the OpEx comparison is going to be vastly different. Yeah, that's the use case I was talking about earlier with the one customer. Another thing is, is that the clouds, they have a lot of different analytic and AI services available. And some of these boutique services, it'd be cost prohibitive for all customers to start building this stuff up themselves. So if they are not going to be using something all the time, renting it like we rent cars is definitely a good way to approach that. But it also allows them access to resources that they don't have to build on-prem for when they need it. Yeah, I think we've talked about some drawbacks in the cloud, but I just want to say that you can also use our spot ocean and associated products in AWS to manage your cloud costs. You know, that's actually a really great point, Rick. I had a conversation, actually it was really recently. We're great at data management and data motion, you know, getting, moving the data around, protecting it, whatever a customer needs from us. But we're not just a data storage company anymore. We have a portfolio that allows us to help customers in so many more ways than just focusing only on the data. And you're mentioning one of the key areas as well. There's a few other solutions that we have out there that could also augment how customers increasing visibility into how their data is being used, either with Cloud Insights or with DataSense. Yes, and we are currently also developing solution using Apache Spark, Spot Ocean in a hypervisor. So basically an OVA that does all that for you? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. I think people would like that, like an appliance, a virtual appliance that takes care of my hybrid cloud needs. Yeah, it sounds cool, right? Yeah, it does. Well, Justin, you had mentioned a little earlier, kind of in jest about not wanting to get down into the details of the technology or whatnot, just having something available so that data scientists could get the job done that they're looking at doing. I think these are the type of solutions that we're providing our customers that are going to help the data sciences focus on what they need to do versus building up the infrastructure so they can begin the work that they want to do. So with an Apache Spark solution, you touched on some of the protocols in use, and mainly we're looking at NFS and object, but why? Why would I be interested in using those, and what are some of the benefits to each? From an industry standpoint and a trend that I've been seeing, object is becoming much more prolific. It was born in the cloud. It was born with Amazon. But now I'm seeing customers looking at object, not just for deep storage on-prem. I'm seeing customers trying to use object as a first-party protocol, not only for analytics, but also for just general object storage to augment. One customer in particular is trying to start leveraging more object directly than HDFS mass storage for the next generation of their data lake. That's a perfect example of what we're seeing an industry trend where I don't see SIFs and NFS going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, obviously they've been around for decades and they'll probably be around for decades more. But one of the things that's starting to get much more common is customers looking at how they're going to leverage object as another protocol for allowing access to the storage to their end users. I would say for AI applications, directly using NFS gives you a much 
faster result and you can also take advantage of our untapped capabilities. But as Ken said, people are moving towards directly using objects. And we've worked with several ISVs like Domino Data Lake that can directly take objects and then train your model and put the model into production without ever needing to use an FS. So Domino's has a data lake? Is it, is it pepperoni? Domino data lake. We, yeah. <laughs> we... <laughs> I gotcha. You're like, what are you talking about, you idiot? Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so ONTAP 9.12.1 introduced the ability to present NAS file shares as objects. So when I heard the feature first announced, I was like, okay, this is the perfect feature for something like an AI workflow. Am I off base there? This duality is actually very important, and we are <laughs> waiting for it to release. And from my experience... No, you're not off base, Justin. When I've been involved with testing with customers with analytics, they want to see primarily NFS, right? That's where the performance adds. That's where the lion's share of the protocol support for these analytic applications is at. But there is growing object support, and we're testing object access. We're testing it out within Spark workloads. We've done it within CPOC and customers are making sure that this is a path forward that we can help them go down should they decide to travel that road. Yeah. And it's great for customers that aren't quite ready to make the leap to object. They still have NFS file shares, right? But they do want to start dabbling in it a bit and it's a good way to transition. And it does all this without having to move any data. And this goes back to our data migration and how challenging that can be. If it's already in place, if you're just presenting it in another way, there's very little you have to do other than just presenting it. Absolutely. And then when you have these hybrid environments where some part of the workflow requires NFS and another part of the workflow may require object, you're working often data in place. So you're not copying data. You're not doing anything unnatural or spending more time working with it. You write it out and it's accessed data in place in a storage efficient process. I think at the end of the day, customers just want a single pane of glass where they can manage their workflows. I would agree with that, Rick. I think our customers are becoming more conscious about how much time they have to spend care and feeding the infrastructure versus how much they need to pay attention to what the business actually needs, what the data scientists needs in order for them to be able to achieve the goals that the whole business needs. So operations, I think, is a very important aspect of it. And with ONTAP being able to present both object as well as NFS to analytic applications, it makes it really easy to manage the storage infrastructure piece through the same workflows without doing anything different. Have you guys played with Chat GPT? I personally have not. I've read a bit about it, but yeah, I have, have not played with it myself. I'm in the okay. same boat. But it's very exciting what I've been reading about it. I've played with it and I'm very excited about its future prospects. In the news, you read that high school English is dead. But on the other hand, some teachers have started to use ChatGPT or something similar to teach their students. And the way to do it is actually called co-editing, right? You ask it 
for a book summary, and then it gives you something, but you ask further questions. You don't just submit an essay that ChatGPT wrote. And these large language models for sure will make our lives easier and increase productivity. One of the key benefits of using a language model like GPT-3 in NLP applications is its ability to learn from large amounts of data and generate high quality text output that closely resembles human language. Even in complex and nuanced contexts, such as legal, medical, or technical writing. I think I'm just going to use that to do my job now. I was talking with who is actually leveraging a chat GPT based application to help her code. <laughs> yeah, I mean, coding is a really good use case for that. And scripting, like yes. if you're an admin, like trying to create a script. And traditionally, you go in and you're searching through. Stack Overflow and all these other blog examples, and some things may or may not work. If you just plug it into Chat GPT and you say, "Hey man, Chat GPT, write me a script that looks for all my users in my AD environment," and it's just going to find all that stuff for you, and it's going to give you something that's probably worlds better than you could have cobbled together on your own in a lot less time. That's true, but Chat GPT does not. Well, it generates code, but it's not very good. <laughs> If you just use GitHub Copilot, it integrates with your IDEs like Python, Eclipse, or whatever. It generates pretty good code based on natural language input.、Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is for enterprises. If you have intellectual property like us, thirty years of untapped code, you wouldn't want to open it for Copilot to learn. So yeah, that would be another opportunity that we can develop in-house for code documentation, translation, searching, such that the untapped engineers they can <laughs> do their job in less time. Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right, Rick. But you know what? The thought just struck me about ChatGPT. You guys remember the controversies around calculators when we were back in school? Yes. <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if ChatGPT is going to become the modern version of a calculator controversy. There's something to be said for using tools in real-world situations, right? Like calculators or ChatGPT or whatever. I think the point of schools not using those is you don't get that intellectual base, right? <laughs> and I don't know how much it matters because when's the last time you use calculus? <laughs> I mean, maybe Rick. Yeah, I think I don't use it. <laughs> more important thing. Is how to leverage all the tools, right? It's not just memorizing knowledge. It's how you leverage those tools to achieve something, and make <laughs> a better future. Yeah, but I mean, you're basically talking about I know how to put it into the calculator versus I know why two plus two equals four. <laughs> memorizing facts is one thing, but knowing. The how and why things work, and I do this in my day to day job too. Like if I'm trying to learn something new, yeah, I could read about it and use a tool to try to help me with that. But what really works for me and for many people, I think, is going in, trying it out, breaking it, trying to fix it, and then that kind of really teaches you all the little base inner workings of everything. And that way, if you run into a problem that something like a Chat GPT can't solve, because I mean, ultimately. These AI models need data, and if you're not feeding it data, if everyone's just using ChatGPT, then 
Where is it getting its information? How is it going to learn if we can't learn? Yeah. Yeah. And caution, <laughs> I have to say, is that these generative AI models are very good at saying something that makes sense and looks good. Suppose you want to buy an EV and ask it about, hey, what is the top five selling EVs from the past year? And it gives you five EV models. You have to <laughs> really check because out of those five, I would say one of them from a automotive industry expert perspective, it looks <laughs> dubious. Is that right? Is it listing something that is like, whoa, I can't, I can't get that. That's going to be terrible. Is that, is that... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, so it, I wonder the if these the companies day, are manipulating, right? Because <laughs> you can manipulate the data. At sets. the end of the day, yeah, yeah. That's also another thing. But you have to be careful. Yeah, you don't <laughs> just use whatever they generate. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's the case. Pretty much anything, right? I mean, anything you read on the internet, you should always trust but verify. I wouldn't even say yeah. trust it. Mistrust and verify and then maybe trust it. But you know, ultimately, yeah, take, information's only as good as the source. Take it with a grain of salt and then <laughs> make your own decisions and take responsibility. Yep. All right. So one area that you can find information that you can trust is Rick's blog. So Rick, tell us about this blog you wrote. Right. So the blogs I've covered is Hybrid Cloud Solutions with Apache Spark and NetApp AI. The other one, Deep Learning with Apache Spark and NetApp AI, Horrible Distributed Training. If you want to dive deeper into data lake migrations, I would suggest technical reports from my colleagues. And I will share the links to my blogs and also the GDC poster. So if we wanted to reach you, Rick, for more information, how would we do that again? Right. My email is rick.huang, R-I-C-K dot H-U-A-N-G at net.com. And Ken? I can be reached at Ken Hillier, K-E-N dot H-I-L-L-I-E-R at netapp.com. And as I said in the beginning, you can also get me at Ken at netapp.com. That's way easier. <laughs> it is. You should have led with that. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Very good email. <laughs> when I got that, I got a lot of spam with it, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's probably accurate there. You got to take the good with the bad. So, a good email address comes with a lot of spams. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Rick Wong and Ken Hulu for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.